Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Dean Jones, the Well-Seasoned Librarian. We are in Season 4, Episode 10. Today I have the pleasure of talking with chef and food writer Taffany Elrod. Uh, I had a really wonderful time talking to Taffany today. We talked about all sorts of things food-related, and I hope that you're going to enjoy this conversation as much as I had having it. I look forward to having her again on the podcast again one day. Um, and we're going to go right to the interview right now, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. My name is Dean Jones, the Well-Seasoned Librarian, and today I am honored to have on my podcast Chef Taffany Elrod of Chef's Feed. Taffany, thank you for being on the show. Hi, Dean. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here, and uh, you feel welcome to call me Taffy because that's what everybody calls me. So Okay, sounds good. I'll call you Taffy then. Now, Taffy, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I am a professional chef. I'm a cooking instructor. I am a recipe developer. Until recently, I ran a restaurant, a pizzeria restaurant full-time with my husband. In, um, we're in the Hudson Valley in New York. Uh, we relocated here from New York City a few years ago. So, um, and now, right now, I'm mostly concentrating on recipe development and uh, virtual teaching, et cetera, work I can do from home for the time being. Now, that's quite a resume. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, your restaurant that you owned and some of the um, work you've done as a food writer? Sure. Um, so our restaurant, uh, Paradiso Pizza Parlor, um, was a, you know, it's kind of, it's sort of in flux. The door's closed, but we may be reopening if we can find this place, you know, um, unfortunately, because of 2020, we're just sort of in flux. But it was a traditional, like, New York City style family pizzeria, full service. So we had full menu, full service restaurant but it was a real mom and pop place. My husband and I ran it ourselves. Um, my husband is from former Yugoslavia, from Montenegro, and he has been making pizza for a long time. And we, um, you know, I've been cooking for a long time. We decided to try to do something ourselves and a, sort of a sort of turnkey place came up uh, available and we took it, but it was all in a new we didn't know anything about the area. We had never <laughs> lived around here. We had never been here before. So it was like quite an undertaking. We just picked up, opened this restaurant and then proceeded to, you know, be there seven days a week, 12, 14, 16 hours a day for five years. Um, but with all that hard work and because, uh, because we had control over everything ourselves, you know, and put all that work in ourselves, we we made it, you know, and then made it until unfortunate, unfortunate circumstances of, you know, this last year and a half, two years. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it was absolutely, of course, some of the hardest work and some of the biggest challenges I've ever faced in my career and was also, you know, incredibly rewarding. And I learned so much until you've owned your own restaurant it's big or small you know you just don't know what it means I think it's like 
you know, having a child, we don't have children, but I, you know, like you don't know until you have a child, what it really means to have a child. You know, you don't know until you have a restaurant, what it really means. Even you think you, you, oh, I ran this person's restaurant and I worked here and, you know, no, till somebody, you know, like until it's really all on your head, you just don't know, but it, it brought, um, you know, some really interesting things into our lives and opportunities as well. And, uh, you know, I don't know what we'll do going forward. I mean, my husband, I still, he's doing some other work right now, but like, he just was born to make pizza. He's really a natural at it. His pizza is delicious. We bump into people all the time who are just asking us, where are you? Like, how can we get some pizza? <laughs> um, I did all the cooking, uh, you know, on the menu I did and all the managing of the restaurant and all the, you know, office work and everything like that. And we just handled everything. He did all the pizza and everything. And we just handled the rest, you know, between us, we back and forth. So, yeah. And uh, we're right on the west side of the Hudson River in the like mid Hudson Valley. Yeah, it's funny because that you mentioned that because I've been talking to people about pizza a lot lately. And it's one of those interesting topics because I think people, once they get a favorite pizzeria, they don't really want to go to someplace like, you know, one of the name brand chains I won't mention, but like, um, you know, we're surrounded by pizza places, but we don't really, our favorites on the other side of the Bay Area, which is like hour and a half, you know, a couple hours away. So if we want to go there, we have to trek out there. So, and we will do that occasionally, but like people are like, how about ordering a pizza locally? And we're like, nah, we're like, I'll just make it myself, you know, who cares? But like, do, do you find like people are like, they, they want to stick with like a pizzeria. If they like it, they're like, they don't really want to go anywhere else. There's no competitor that's going to open up. They're going to be like, uh, the hell with that, you know, I'll wait till my pizzeria opens up again. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's something that people feel very personal about, you know, and they, and they get connected to whatever they like. We were very, you know, obviously new in the area, and this is a small community. Um, the, there's a pizzeria here that has been open since, I don't, I don't know, like for at least 40 years, that at one point was the only pizzeria in town and, you know, where everybody grew up, went there, you know, when they were in school. So it took a while for people to open up to us or even come try us. I mean, and I'm saying, you know, there was people who didn't come in for two or three years and then finally decided, you know, to come try us. We were doing pizza a little bit different than everybody else in the area. Um, so either people seem to sort of, you know, love us or hate us. They either just loved what we were doing and then they were on board or they just, it didn't, you know, didn't work for them. They wanted to go and stick with their traditional, you know, what they were used to. Um, but we did, I think the thing that we felt, how can I say, you know, like it was that we were really appreciated or that, you know, we felt honored that people saw us that way um, was that, you know, when they would come back from a vacation, they would call us from the airport so they could pick up food on the way home. When their kids would come home from college, the first thing they'd do was call us, you know, for a pie or for whatever else. Our, our salads, our calzones, our soups, there were certain things that we made that really were different and people really loved them. And uh, I mean, I think one of the most sort of touching and complimentary things that ever happened. We had a regular customer who uh, I would say was probably in her late 70s, early 80s. And we hadn't seen her for a little while. And it turned out she had gotten a bad case of food poisoning from a 
rotisserie chicken that wasn't properly cooked. On the way, she had her grandson call us on the way home from the hospital where she had had food poisoning to get a dish of my husband's eggplant because it was the only thing that she wanted to eat or thought she could eat. And I don't, to me, like, I don't know if there's a bigger compliment than that. You know, not just about the food tasting good or whatever, but feeling like it's safe it's wholesome, you know, and it's home cooking that would be comforting. And we had a lot of people come to us to say, you know, oh, my grandma's in the hospital or my kid is sick and, you know, we want your soup, we want your, you know, pasta, whatever it might be. And that was, you know, for us, that obviously was special and made us feel good, but it also let us know we were doing something right, you know, that people felt like it was good food that they would want to have when they weren't feeling well or when they wanted to celebrate or, you know, feed their kids and on and on. There's a, there's a chain I won't mention, but they're, uh, the pizza is horrible and, uh, but they're cheap. They're really, really cheap. And I think we all know who they are. So how do they, how does that hurt business? Cause they keep lowballing the price. And I was at a place nearby where I work, it's called rotten city pizza, shout out to a local. And, uh, it's amazing pizza. Just, really good pie and they do like a couple slices at lunchtime for like 13 15 but it's artisan pizza you know and it's really good and I'm, i don't care i'll pay it but this some guy was in line in front of me and he was complaining bitching about the price i said why don't you go get a goddamn little seat a uh, little uh pizzeria <laughs> guy yeah I'll, I'll cut that out later why don't you go get some of their pizza if you don't like it you know they're really cheap you can get a whole pie for less than this but yeah. you know I mean, go get a Totino's if, if that's what you want, you know, <laughs> if you, if you don't want to spend the money, don't go Do people bitch about prices and stuff because of the lowballing of some of these chains. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And actually our prices were probably too reasonable. We, you know, we managed to keep them fairly low because of, because of how we were working in our margins and, you know, we were just doing everything ourselves. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's certain foods it, that are deemed you know, as of, of lower value, I guess, they, you know, they should be inexpensive. They should be inexpensive. People don't want to pay a lot of money for, I don't, you know, like certain a slice of pizza, a taco, you know, whatever it may be that they just think is an inexpensive food or a fast food. And, you know, we were doing the best quality ingredients, like all by hand, you know, just hours and hours of manpower, and then people would come in and say, oh, I can't, I'm going to pay this, you know, like, but first of all, it wasn't that expensive, but second of all, you know, you don't have to, you could go somewhere else, but it's just that perception that no, this needs to be cheap. Like you have no right to ask these prices. This needs to be cheap because of that expectation being built in part by unfortunately chain restaurants, um, you know, undercutting everyone on everything to make these artificially low prices. Um, and using, you know, inexpensive ingredients, et cetera. But of course, there, obviously I can't get my ingredients at a price that someone who is buying, you know, flatbed trucks of ingredients can. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and then they're shortchanging their staff and, you know, the list goes on and on, but people still are expecting those prices. And it's funny because they can, you know, they taste the difference. They can taste the difference and they say, oh, this is better or I don't have heartburn after I eat your food. You know, I don't, I feel good after I eat this food. I don't feel bad. Um, 
as one of our customers once said, you know, I don't hate myself after I eat your food, <laughs> but they can't get over the, you know, especially because we weren't, uh, you know, it wasn't a high-end white tablecloth kind of place. They just couldn't get over that feeling that, but I need this to be cheaper. So it's definitely that's, and for independent restaurants, um, you know, really small, really, truly independent restaurants, that can be such a hurdle to get over people's expectations of food prices, it's, especially now, you know, I mean, you can see that, you know, food prices are rising and people are, you know, very quickly get very upset about it because in the United States, people don't necessarily value um, food in the way they do other things. So while they'll absorb price increase in so many things, you know, oh yeah, electronics get more expensive every six months, everything, you know, but my food, no way, I can't, I won't do it. I won't up my food budget. That irritates me because I see so many people that grow produce or make specialty foods and still people complain, but it's really weird because they'll go to a French restaurant or they'll go to a steakhouse and they'll pay like $50 for a steak that I could probably buy at Safeway for $6. And I, it's, we have this bizarre world thing in America where like French food, for instance, there's a lot of stuff like you, you could buy it at Safeway for like three to $5, but they're, the French restaurants, they're going to put some cognac on it catch it on fire a little bit and you're going to pay 70 bucks for it and it's just like i don't know it's i think there's a lot of like people aren't really thinking it through and then the whole thing about i tell my kids all the time they go let's get some pizza and i said if we can get a pizza here in 30 minutes and it's only 20 dollars for two pizzas i don't want it because that's going to be crap pizza and they're like oh and i can see the light bulb going over their head i'm like what i said why how did they make that i said you see me make pizza it takes me like, you know, several minutes to make it and like do the whole thing. It's, it's hours of work. I said, think about that when you get a pizza that you got to your door in 30 minutes. Think about what entailed there, you know? Yeah, you know, there's just level upon level upon level. And of course, you know what I mean? I, in my life, I have been in a position where I faced food insecurity, you know, or not having enough income and even yeah. working in the food industry, like still not being able to feed myself, you know? So like, yeah. I don't ever want to, minimize that but the right. truth of the matter is you know there's this per the perceived value of what it means to go out and dine at a you know a fine dining establishment where you're not going to have more food you know the value is in how it's prepared how it's presented what your surroundings are how you're being treated you know are is how you're being catered to is somebody taking the crumbs off your table while you're dining um you know and and are you having this service that's very, you know, whatever you want to call it with a flourish right. uh, versus, you know, is, uh, is it just, and of course that's what, so a, a sort of this, you know, trap that a lot of small independent restaurant owners, food trucks, caterers, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and especially if they are what's considered quote unquote ethnic, you know, um, and that's where people are suddenly the, the perception of value isn't there. And, you know, no matter how good the food is, the idea that they would pay for it above a certain point just doesn't resonate. And then, you know, like you said, I mean, if you don't understand how the pricing works or how, you know, how these factors come together and you don't understand why somebody can afford 
to sell a pizza for $10, you know, whereas somebody else cannot, then it needs to charge $20. There's so, you know, I mean, there's just a whole world in there of history and knowledge and, you know, economics and culture that we could dissect for yeah. eternity, you know, yeah. it's, it's, but it is, it is, it's frustrating. It's frustrating, especially, you know, to be in the food business and, and know how people see the food and, you know, and value it. Now I worked in a re Mexican restaurant for two years and I could still eat Mexican food three times a day, seven days a week and never ever complain or get tired of it. I'm I'll always be like down for that. Can you eat pizza every day? Is it, or is there a point where you're like enough pizza? Well, actually, I mean, it's kind of funny, but you know, our pizza, I, so let me preface this by saying I grew up in uh, Southeastern Michigan and I didn't eat much pizza growing up and it's definitely a very different kind of pizza. And then I moved to New York city 20 years ago and I, you know, I mean, you can get a bad slice in New York city. Don't get me wrong. You get a really bad slice in New York city yeah, everywhere, yeah. you know, but you can also get a good slice. Pizza is something that in theory, you know, I could probably eat every day because at its most foundational, you know, elements, it's just bread and cheese and vegetables and meats and, you know, and just good wholesome food. But that being said, I don't eat anybody's pizza except ours. I don't eat anybody's yeah. pizza except my husband. I haven't had pizza from anybody but my husband like since I met him really, you know, 13 years ago. I, and that's how I met him. I met him in a pizzeria. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Like I'll eat his pizza anytime, any day, but it's for me, it's home cooking. So, you yeah. know, I can't really answer that question really, you know, I yeah. mean, I'm biased, but there are a lot of people who can eat pizza every day and, and do, you know what I mean? Of course, when we're, you know, when we're saying Mexican food, I mean, the different regions of Mexico, you're talking about incredible variation you're talking about you know incredible richness of food culture and you know so much food so i would hope anybody could eat that any you know every day but if we're yeah. talking about like sort of americanized um you know mexican restaurant food still if you break it down and look at what it is if it's a decent restaurant you know then it's good food it's good yeah. basic food you're getting vegetables you're getting you know beans and grains and some meats and seafood and you know so you should be able to eat that every day if it's being made with a any modicum of you know just the yeah. basic now i was gonna ask you do you have your favorite pie well yeah so i um my husband makes me a white pie he nice. makes me a white pie with uh ricotta or ragot as they call it around here, and um, you know mozzarella. Plenty of he does fresh uh, grana padano, so lots of you know. And I love it with hot cherry peppers, mm. vinegar. You know, hot cherry peppers. Sometimes a little fresh basil. He'll throw on other veggies for me sometimes. Um, you know, but pretty basic. And so that's that's my go-to. Hi. That sounds amazing. Oh my God. That sounds so wonderful. Uh, I hope you guys do get to open up again soon. I, I know, or at least let's hope he makes me some pizza soon. I gotta yeah. make a request. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, you grew up in a family of cooks and artists. How did this influence your career? It really, it influenced me, um, in two ways. So I grew up around food, you know, people, 
when I was very young, my grandmother, who was a really accomplished home cook um, and all like sort of a scientist in the kitchen, she did a lot of changing of food and you know food substitutions. But she also worked in a bakery um, professionally, and I would go visit her in the in the bakery. And uh, my dad was cooking off and on the whole time I was growing up. And then my mom became, when I was maybe in middle school, uh, she had, she was a cake decorator and she started in the, she became a pastry chef and then she started her own like little business doing, um, you know, wedding cakes and things. I mean, if, you know, that was a long time ago, if it, if it was in the days of social media, she, she, a really excellent cake decorator. I'm sure she, you know, she could have had just a thriving online um, presence. So I just grew up with it as such a part of my life. Everybody else in my family is also very artistic. My dad plays music. My mom uh, was a dancer and plays music. My grandmother, which is my maternal grandmother, my mom's mom, um, was a uh, was in fine arts. She she did oil painting, sculpture, I mean, really anything, she she did it all. So my brother is a writer and an artist. I cook, <laughs> uh, you know, so I was the, sort of the least artistic out of the whole family. Um, so for me, food was my, you know, medium. And I think the other way that influenced me is because I came from that background, we were very non-traditional. Um, you know, it didn't really occur to me to have a traditional career. Um, it didn't really occur to me to like, you know, maybe I'll go to law school or something like that. So I, I think I just, between the cooking and food writing and, you know, just loving creation around food, it just, I just tumbled into it sort of, you know, without too much thought. Now, you're a graduate of the National Gourmet Institute for Food and Health. How did that influence your cooking and your career? Um, well, as I mentioned, I came from a very non-traditional background. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was, at the time that I attended cooking school, I was, I was very, I knew I wanted to go to cooking school. Um, I knew I wanted to not just cook professionally, but pursue food writing. I've always loved, you know, food writing and been a cookbook collector and I bought my first cookbooks for myself at the Scholastic Book Fair in fourth grade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I still have them. Uh, Very yeah. nice. Yeah, so, um, and the Natural Gourmet, it has since been um, like rolled into the Institute for Culinary Education and it's a part, one of their programs. At the time, you know, it was this funky little kind of like hippie cooking school in Chelsea in Manhattan. And so I had a, amazing time there. I met amazing people. Um, but of course, it meant that it funneled my career, you know, sort of into a very specific direction, because this was food for health, uh, vegetarian and vegan baking and cooking. Um, so, you know, I went into that arena, cooking in the city. Um, so it was good. And I enjoyed it. But you know, at some point, I realized me, I didn't necessarily want to just stay in, you know, in that world, I wanted to expand out farther. So then I had to do that by myself, you know. Um, I, I read in on your um, comments on social media, and you talked about having ADHD, as I have, and I also was diagnosed with dyslexia. And it's been a challenge to me career wise, it actually, uh, I think because of that, I chose not to be a sous chef at one point because 
I didn't want the chefs hating my guts, you know, because I'd be messing up orders or whatever. So how did how does this affected your career choices and uh, your schooling and everything? Well, you know, I'm still learning the answer to that because I wasn't diagnosed with ADHD until uh, about four, three, four years ago. Very common. Yeah. That's happened yeah. to a lot of people. So I didn't know, you know, and so I'm still looking back, you know, and like in retrospect, sort of re examining and realizing like, oh, oh, okay. So, you know, I think the major impact it had on me and my career was that, you know, I struggled with things in a way that I couldn't understand. And, um, you know, in the long run, I guess it's a positive, but I've had a, a really varied, you know, career and I have a lot of different experience because I would, I couldn't seem to just, you know, like take one straight route. Yeah. You know, to I'm the same way. Yeah. I, you know, so I've worked in a lot of different environments um, and I've had a lot of different experience. You know, people ask me like, what's your specialty? And I, I always, it's like, but I don't know, specialty, like I, cooking, I cook. <laughs> like, yeah, but do you cook Italian? Do you do this? Do you do that? Like, I don't like, I'm not really sure what you're asking me because I cook, like whatever, you know, everything. Yeah. I, you know, I was always trying to make my business to learn everything humanly possible. You know, and if I go in somebody's kitchen in their home kitchen, professional kitchen, whatever, and they're doing something I haven't seen before, you know, I'm like in there trying to learn it and memorize it. So it... I think has become a strength for me, but it definitely hindered my ability in the beginning to just take a, you know, a straight route in my career and just decide to go from point A to point B. You know, for me, there's a lot of points between point A and point B that I had to go, uh, you know, through. So, and again, like I said, I mean, I'm still sort of trying to understand it and, and learn more about it. I think though, it did give me a lot of openness, um, a lot of compassion. You know, I come from a family with, um, you know, some different uh, disabilities and differences. And so even though I didn't know about all of mine, you know, I already was open to the idea that, you know, we all just operate differently and just need support in being able to, you know, operate to our fullest potential. We don't need to be told what's wrong with us. You know, we need to be told or helped or if nothing else, just not hindered to be able to do what we can do to our best of our abilities. And, um, you know, now, and now that I know it's really helping me because the things where I used to push myself really hard and not understand why I would ha have a hard time with them, you know, that why well, I need to do this thing and you know, like, why am I not doing it and, you know, now I have more, I finally have more compassion for myself and can, you know, deal with myself more sympathetically, you know, and, and make allowances for myself because I would never do that for myself. I would never make allowances for myself. I would just always be frustrated with myself. I think, I think a lot of ADHD people in my experience are really hard on themselves. I don't think, I think the one thing I've noticed that is a commonality between people with dyslexia or ADHD or both or any kind of learning disability is that they are the toughest on themselves than they are on anybody else. Do you think that's common with you too? Absolutely. Absolutely. I will make 
you know, concessions or, you know, try to be helpful or give forgive or whatever, like everybody else. And then when it comes to myself, I'll just turn on myself. What is wrong? Like, I could never even not just talk to somebody else that way, but like even think about them that way, you know, and then I'll just turn on myself and be so harsh, like, so, you know, so unkind. So that's really, and of course, in the food industry, that is, you know, considered like, a strength or, you know what I mean? Like the, it, it's really easy to just continue to grow that because it's considered a good thing. Like, yeah, you, you're hard on yourself. You never, you never take a break. You never, you know, like you're going to, right, right, right. you know, make somebody proud or I don't know. I don't know what you're really going to achieve with that, but that's the idea. So that didn't, you know, it didn't stop me. (laughs) It encouraged me to be more that way um, and to be more harsh with myself. So that's what I'm, you know, working on now. But then I was, I was teaching, um, before we opened the restaurant, I was teaching full-time for um, Project Renewal in Manhattan. They have a culinary arts training program for adults who are returning to the workforce, whether they're coming from um, my, my program. Well, actually I was director of the program before I, I left. Um, was specifically for veterans returning to the workforce. Nice, but it was Very also good. their original program is for um, you know coming out of incarceration, coming uh, out of um, you know addiction, whatever, and being able to get back into life. Uh, and I loved. I mean, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. I loved teaching, uh, and I I just and my students were you know like from twenty years old to sixty years old, and with them, you know what I mean? I, I loved teaching and I, I loved being able to give them an environment that I hoped was supportive and structured and, you know, allowed them to have what they needed and allowed them to progress, you know, and knowing there would be issues there, there would, you know, there would always be issues there. And so I guess it was also in reality, now that I look back on it, a very good environment for me as well probably part of why I loved it so much because there was a lot of support, you know, in place. They had, um, you know, counselors they could talk to. They, they were support in place for their needs. And I, you know, I was, I was a part of that. I'd be checking up on them and, you know, I had to write reports and et cetera. But I think in that environment, it also sort of allowed me to sort of reimagine what, you know, my food career could be or, or how, being in the food industry could be, if that makes sense. It's so important, I think, that we have programs for people that might be um, addicts or uh, formerly incarcerated or veterans, because I think all these people and many others, we just need, I think, oftentimes training to do something that we can have that's our own, that kind of takes away from this other label that's been slapped on us, or we've even slapped on ourselves. And I just think it's so important that we encourage programs like this in America, because so oftentimes, we just, you know, we want people to like change or do better, but we don't offer them the tools. And so often I just see people flounder because, or go back to what they knew because they didn't have the tools to move forward and find something they can excel at. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think first and foremost, people deserve to be acknowledged and, um, you know, to be told that, were shown, you know, demonstrated that they have value, intrinsic value as people. And we 
fall down a lot. We feel a lot at that in, you know, in the society and then the rest just spirals out. So, you know, whatever your issue may be, whatever you're struggling with, um, you know, wherever you've gotten to in life, you know, I don't think it's until you feel recognized as an intrinsically valuable human being that you can repair. You have to feel it for yourself, but you know, let's face it, we're all together. You have to see it from somebody else because if, if everybody's treating you or telling you that you have no value, and of course, if we're coming from a background where we've had those kind of challenges, most of the time that's what's happening, um, you know, where do you go from there? So, you know, I mean, that's sort of the foundational place to find a way out or a step up. And, you know, that when I was disparaging myself over, you know, my ADHD, I was telling myself I didn't have value, that I was something wrong. And, you know, I wasn't as valuable or valuable as a person. And so that's, you know, I would love to live in a world where we all are supportive and we all want to lift each other up. But I would hope that it, you know, at the very least, we can do that for each other or there is, you know, it only takes one person. There's someone who will do that for you, recognizing you, you know, so that you can progress from wherever you are, you know, so that, because we, because again, we all deserve a career. We all deserve uh, or a means uh, to support ourselves, but we also, you know, all need a, a fulfilled life. Yeah, all of us, whomever we are, whatever position we're in, you know, and because intrinsically at our, in, at our core, at our center, whatever, if you want to call it, you know, your soul, your being, we're, we're all identical, you know, and we're, what we're outwardly appearing to someone else doesn't change that and it never will. Yeah. And, you know, that's, but that's the funny thing, like me understanding that about somebody else, but then trying to bring it home to myself was a challenge. Well, yeah, it was the same way because I didn't go to school for like 25 years because I was in special ed. I almost didn't graduate. You know, I was like, I, I'm like, I'm too dumb to go to college. Right. But now I'm a librarian. And like, I think a lot of times we do it to ourselves. You know, we slap the label on ourselves more than anybody else does. And I think that people learn disabilities we're so hard on ourselves. We could work twice as hard as anybody else, but we're still looking in the mirror going, you loser, you can't do this. You know, it's hard. It's yeah, a hard yeah. obstacle to overcome. Yeah. I, and since you brought it up, I mean, you know, I went back to school. I finally finished college in my thirties. I went back to school, but it was a school that specialized in um, it's city college of New York, but they have a, a school for working adults. Yeah, I had struggled with school so much, you know, I had struggled getting through because of my issues that I didn't know I had, you know, and the funny thing is I went back to school for um, psychology and human services and I was taking oh, nice. classes, you know, about disability and it's still not registering. <laughs> like, no, it's so common. It's so common. Yeah. You know, and, <clears throat> but I, but I did go that route and I, you know, I did finally and finally finish my degree, but same thing, like I still somehow didn't feel you know, that I was doing enough and it wasn't, you know, it didn't matter because I didn't graduate from Princeton when I was 20, you know, or whatever, like I wasn't, you know, a genius. Right. So it wasn't, who cares? Nobody cares what you've accomplished, you know? Um, and that's the other thing, like learning now to give myself credit for all that I have done with 
you know, lacking in knowledge and tools that I, that could have helped, you know? Well, I think also, <clears throat> and I know you've probably seen this too. Like I've seen people that are addicts who are poor. I mean, I've, I've been related, I'm related to addicts that are poor and I've, you know, seen addicts that are rich. And there's a big difference between those two groups because both of them are addicts, but at the same time, they're both labeled differently and society sees them both differently. And I've seen people that are uh, ex-cons that are like, they come from like a, a wealthy background and ex-cons that come from a poor background. And again, labeling is very different for both of these groups. And I think a lot of it is uh, how we, we see ec economic status and like, I, I won't mention a politician, but there's a politician who's got a relative that's an ex-addict and they're seen with no stigma at all, really. But if one of my, uh, you know, relatives that is an addict was trying to do the same thing, I don't think they would be like, get out of here, you're an addict. So I think it's different, different treatment for different socioeconomic groups. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, you know, class factors into it, um, economics factor into it. I mean, just there's no denying it. I mean, why is there... Why do we say white collar crime? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, what exactly. What, yeah. Like, so, oh, it's fine. You're good. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you're you're almost rewarded for it. Here, here's a job when you get out. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, yeah, I mean, that, that goes without saying. <laughs> you know, it's unfortunate, but it's definitely true. All right. On a lighter note, uh, tell us about Chef's Feed and what it is. Sure. Um, so <laughs> what did it, I just posted a class there today. So um, Chef's Feed is a platform, an online platform for chefs. Uh, originally, it was, um, you could actually, I mean, you still can, but, you know, pre-pandemic, uh, it was mainly a platform for chefs to um, sell events. So, you know, you could do private dinners, etc. During the um, last couple of years, it pivoted to doing more virtual events. So I do virtual cooking classes there, but it's also a way to support a chef's work. So you can, it's sort of like a Patreon in a sense, you know what I mean? So you can, you can decide to go to my chef's feed page, Chef right. Kathy Elrod, and just sign up for my feed. And if you want to, you can support me monetarily by signing up for a monthly um, subscription. So that, you know, so it's another way to support uh, chef's work um, you know, that helps me to be able to do the cooking classes or, and, you know, and do my work. Uh, and I share things, you know, I share recipes there and um, think like updates on what I'm doing. I've had so much going on these last like two or three months. I haven't been as active there as I would like to be. I'm trying to ramp it back up now. Um, or you can also just come there and sign up for a virtual class. And if you are there, um, you know, in theory, once I begin to do more real life events, um, you know, I can also sell those or post those through there. So if I'm doing a, you know, pop-up or a private dinner or, you know, we're doing a one night pizzeria is back for one night, you know, you'd be able, you would be able to buy a ticket there or buy a meal there or, you know, et cetera. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So now for those listeners who are listening to us right now, um, I'm going to include a uh, link to Chef's Feed in the bio so you can look for that and find it there. What excites you in cooking right now and what things are inspiring you? You know, it's actually a really exciting time um, in food and cooking. And it's a time that I think I've been waiting a long time to, you know, to see. So, I mean, it's, there's so much, but obviously for me, you know, watching um, African-American food come to the forefront, watching all these different, you know, indigenous uh, Native American food start to come to the forefront, not just to be appreciated by someone else, but, you know, within people's communities, rebuilding, um, you know, their food ways and reconnecting with their food ways and, you know, healing their own selves through that, but also, also as, uh, you know, something that was not being appreciated in food media that, you know, the cookbooks that weren't being published, the shows that weren't being made, watching all that come to the, you know, like just flourish is so, I mean, and you know, the list goes on and on. There's so much, you know, the Korean food is having a moment right now. Having a moment right now, you know, I mean, I hope it's not a moment. I hope it's a lot more than that. I hope this is, you know, going to continue to be, um, appreciate it because it's already such a part of our culture in this country you know what I mean it's so and such a such a wonderful meaningful part of our culture in this country that I hope that it just continues to flourish in terms of being appreciated and um you know because it's not that it wasn't there it's just that the powers that be weren't sharing it you know or saying no nobody cares about that story or no nobody's interested you know and I really hope that that's really changing for good you know and of course there's younger people coming up every day that are going you know the industry all the industries are changing as they come into the industries and have different expectations and different um you know understandings of the rights that they have and how they you know deserve to be seen and heard um so i mean all of that i don't you know i could just go on and on but there's just so much great stuff happening and i just find it thrilling so who are some of your chef role models and cooking uh, author role models yeah, that's, there's so many. It's so hard. <laughs> I was it is. No, it is. I make a list because I'm like, I'm not going to remember anybody's name and I'm going to be mad. But, you know, so if I want to go a little farther back, you know, obviously um, I'll never forget being in my early 20s before I went to cooking school and finding a Jessica B. Harris cookbook in like my local second bookstore, you know, whatever, and being in shock because I had never seen anything about you know, African diaspora cooking, you know, and never like just being completely blown away. So she absolutely, of course, had huge effect on me. Um, but there's so, there's so many, I mean, there's so many people that right now doing great work. Um, and then there's these, you know, I was also really, when I was younger, really, uh, affected by, the work of Madeline Kaman. Same thing. I had never really seen a woman as, you know, as a serious chef, as a serious cook presented, you know, beyond um, kind of the Betty Crocker stuff, you know, whatever. Uh, that was big for me. Oh, man. And, you know, right now, gosh, there's just so many people doing so much great stuff. I mean, obviously, 
there's you know michael twitty's out there doing the um you know cooking gene stuff i, I love him i love all his yeah, books you know, he's amazing he, he is amazing um but there's so many others uh therese nelson uh black culinary um man and that you know there's people who aren't as i mean of course there's sean sherman but you know uh i follow somebody on social media linda black elk she's like teaching um you know in her community yeah um of course tony tipton martin is you know now at uh, cook's country oh, but you know what i also just like still love um Manchi videos on youtube like she's killing it <laughs> oh my god i love her so much i would love to have her on the show she's just the best and her youtube videos are so freaking awesome her cookbooks are really her cookbook is really good as well yeah i have i have two of her cookbooks i mean i when i was younger and trying to find you know korean cookbooks in english there weren't any you know i mean she really she was like groundbreaking and in, in and that's what i mean you know like why were there none that's insane i don't you know it's ridiculous she's wicked funny too and she's got i love her outfits that she wears on this show yeah she's, she's, she's a lot of fun but she you know her, her recipes work and her information is great you know it's solid that's the other side of it so you know she's more than just an influencer um yeah, yeah I mean, really could just i and you know what's gonna like that's the thing i was like and then i'm gonna feel bad because i didn't mention the hundred other people who i think are amazing <laughs> I mean, we, I, so whoever you are, I'm thinking about you. I just can't think of your name right now. We do uh, live in an embarrassment of uh, cooks and chefs that are famous right now. I mean, if you watch, you know, if you watch Hulu or you watch um, Netflix or any of these channels that you can get online now, I think like a quarter of the shows are cooking shows now and they're all trending oh, yeah. and doing very well. It's a crazy. Yeah. I mean, the Great British Bake Off, we watch that every week. Like some people watch football. And, uh, and it's, but it's a big deal. You know, people talk about it. If people lose, they're like, oh, that's not fair. You know, <laughs> that's why you reminded me there's a new episode tonight, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll be yeah. watching it. That's right. I had never watched it. I had not watched it, like any television for probably 10 years before, you know, the lockdown. So I like binged I don't know, like 10 episodes or something, whatever it is, including the holiday ones of, of the great British baking show. Oh, yeah, like those are great. Within a few months. It was, so it was like a crash course. But yeah, I mean, I don't know if, you know, if you follow me on social media, if you, um, you know, are on my website or whatever, like you'll see more of the chefs who I admire, respect and admire um, because I don't want to leave anybody out. Uh, but, you know, there's just so there's, like you said, it's an embarrassment of riches right now. There's just so much. I my wife always laughs because I don't watch sports. I'm not a big sports guy, but but I'll get up from the couch and I'll be like, my hands in the air, like, what a third layer of the cake? Are you insane? That's gonna fall, or you're putting it in too late. Get that in the oven sooner. Or that's gonna need to cool. That fondant's gonna melt. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I my husband. He at first like I was watching it and he just kind of wasn't you know tuned into it, and now like he has. You know, like he's gotten into it. Now he's the one who's like, if they're going to send this guy home, I'm that, I'm not going to watch it anymore. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it draws you in. It get, you know, you get there because we, we, we don't watch sports either. Either one of us. So. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't tell you who's on most of the time. I, I don't know. My, my son is a big sports fan, but I'm like, is that baseball, football? Who's playing? I don't know. He's like, dad, <laughs> it's football season. Get a grip. <laughs> Now, what's next for you? Oh, that's a 
Fantastic question. That's what I'm working on right now. Um, we'll see. I, I'm going to continue to do virtual teaching and hopefully some live in-person teaching again. I really miss, you know, working with people with food and teaching. I will continue to be doing, you know, recipe development, but I'm hoping that we will be able to find a kitchen, a brick and mortar kitchen. It probably won't be a restaurant in the way it was before. I don't think either one of us intends to go back to working 16 hour days again, but yeah, um, you know, but something a little more um, integrative of, you know, our food plus my teaching and cooking and, um, you know, something where we can have, have it in a different way, but, you know, we miss having a kitchen. We miss being able to serve food to people. And, um, you know, I would love to, I mean, for a while I was even selling like, granola out of our pizzeria <laughs> we, we would close the pizzeria at night and I was we were baking granola by the ton you know and shipping it out so okay it wasn't a ton but it felt like it um you know so we we miss having a certified kitchen where we can serve food if you could cook dinner for up to 10 people living or dead who would you cook for and invite and what would you cook you know, I, it's funny, I've been thinking about this question. <laughs> I know. It's, I really, you know, maybe this is self-serving, but I really, I really would, if I could cook dinner for my grandparents, all of whom are deceased. Yeah, um, I get that. And yeah, and my, my great aunt, who unfortunately is deceased, and uh, some of my great grandparents, I have, I only met one of my great grandmothers. And by the time I met her, she was very grumpy. <laughs> but by all accounts, she was a master baker of pies and breads, you know, farm, she was a farmhouse wife. Um, and they, they I'm, I have a very, um, you know, varied heritage. They're from different backgrounds. So some, you know, my great grandparents, some of them, you know, came over here from somewhere else. And um, I know they wouldn't tend, they wouldn't all fit. I would have to choose who could, who could come and who wouldn't if I'm having all my grandparents. But, you know, a lot of my elders, I never got to cook for. Um, you know, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who really influenced me and raised us, she passed when I was about 18. Um, you know, so to be able to have a meal and share a meal and you know, and ask questions and would obviously would be more than a dream come true. And I would just cook, you know, I would just cook our, our favorite comfort foods. You know, we, my husband and I, I mean, I guess we'd have to make pizza, wouldn't we? <laughs> but, you know, yeah. and I say, you know, one of our favorite dishes is like just a slow braised, um, really simple, slow braised short ribs. Mm. Um, you know, I would, my grandmother was vegetarian, so I would have to make a, I think I'd make her my favorite, like vegetarian, uh, quote unquote, shepherd's pie. And nice. we always have feta cheese and olives and, you know, some sort of salad on the table, mm. and, uh, you know, just, at, and lots of vegetable side, side dishes. I always, I just love, you know, like roasted vegetables and a fresh vegetable and a salad. And and of course, desserts and pineapple upside down cake. And, you know, I'd have to make my grandmother, my sweet potato pie and I'd have to make her in my pecan pie and you know I'd probably have to make something that she taught me to make and you know ask her if I did it right um so yeah I mean it would just really be you know home cooking comfort food with 
these people who I just wish I knew more about, you know, I would just love to be able to talk to them and ask them questions and, you know, hopefully, hopefully they'd show me some tricks in the kitchen and, you know, and, and just learn because I, I'm at the point in my life where, you know, I really feel their absence and just would love to just have one more conversation. I think our relationships with our grandparents are often wasted by our youth. I think we could talk so much better with them as we get older. And now that I'm getting to be the age of a grandparent, I find that I would love to talk to my grandparents who are deceased because yeah. I really feel like I was too stupid when I was younger to really know what to talk to them about. I didn't have the life experience to really relate to them, you know? So it's a crime, you know, that we lose them so early and then we miss out on the really good conversations we could have had more older. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, I mean, I luckily, because we were with my maternal grandmother, you know, I did get to spend more time with her than anybody else. And I did learn a lot about, you know, her family and her history, but the rest of my grandparents, um, you know, I really missed out on spending more time with them. And, uh, and of course, yeah, I mean, at that age, when you're 17, when you're 10, you know, what do you talk to your grandparents about? You know, it's not the meaty life stuff that you, <laughs> you know, that you would want to ask them about as an adult. Yeah. Now I got to ask you one more question since we're approaching Thanksgiving. Uh, are you cooking Thanksgiving dinner? And if you, if so, what are you cooking? <laughs> um, I don't know yet. We haven't decided what we're doing. It's, it's just my husband and I, we don't have any uh, family in this area. And um you know, we used to always, it was, a, it was our busiest, one of our, the day before Thanksgiving was one of our busiest days of the year in the restaurant. So we would just collapse on Thanksgiving day and, you know, just eat leftovers. Um, so I don't know. I have no idea. Um, and that's not a very exciting answer, but, and we don't have any, we, for Thanksgiving, like we don't have any specific foods that we make. I grew up vegetarian, so I don't, care whether there's a turkey there or not because I didn't grow up <laughs> yeah um, you know I'm, I'm more engaged in other things I, I usually make sweet potato pie I usually make greens mm, yeah um you know and I make kind of my own version of sweet potato pie that's a little bit more custardy I think but uh and then we'll sometimes we'll make like you know some different Cornish game hens or something like that especially if it's just two of us we've done venison we've done different things um, mm, nice yeah, or, or vegetarian, like, you know, to me, it's funny, to me, like, the comfort meal of Thanksgiving is just, like, a vegetarian meal that's all about, you know, like, the sides and mashed potatoes, and, you know, my grandmother used to make the most insanely delicious dressing, um, I've never mastered it myself, uh, so, yeah, we shall see, I'm not sure, but I'm not, we'll see. <laughs> well, I, I hope you have a good Thanksgiving, that sounds really nice, um, Taffy, I want to thank you for being on the show. I've really enjoyed getting to talk to you and I hope we get to talk again. This has been good. Absolutely. Thank you. And, uh, you know, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for reaching out to me. That was my conversation with Taffany Elrod, chef. Now, I wanted to also add that we had forgotten to include the information that the Chef's Feed platform is now rebranding and it is becoming the Taste Made makers platform so um, we wanted to go ahead and mention that that there's a rebranding going on so chef's feed is now called taste made makers platform and that was the, the bit we wanted to include that we had um, accidentally omitted in the conversation um, on Wednesday we're gonna be having Faith Kramer 
on the web on the podcast. She has a new book out called 52 Shabbats, Friday Night Dinners, Inspired by a Global Jewish Kitchen. She was a wonderful guest, and I can't wait for you to hear that conversation on Wednesday. On Friday, we're going to have TV host, podcaster Rayshawn Parker uh, from the Beyond the Check podcast TV show and, and TV show. He's going to be on on Friday at a great time talking to him in his home in Georgia. So those are two guests to look forward to this week. And I hope you guys had a good holiday and looking forward to the holidays coming up. And until then, happy cooking.